In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul was understandably angry with the church. You can see it as he writes. Now, he's writing to a group of people that are genuinely saved, but they're carnal. They're committing fornication, some of them. Now, this one guy, he's lost because Paul said you've got to kick him out of the church so he can be saved. But for the most part, the congregation was a group of saved people. But they were suing each other. They were divided over personalities. They were arguing with each other. And we've, we've seen some of that here lately. So Paul is upset with them. In 2 Corinthians, he's somewhat depressed. Now, a lot of people will get angry when you say that. Paul couldn't be depressed. You know, he's this great apostle. Just read it as he talks about being cast down but not destroyed. I mean, how, what does that sound like to you? He was depressed. He had been through it. He had been beaten. He had been in jail. He had, and now he had a group of people <clears throat> that, were, that, that he loved, that he had, would pour out his very life for, and yet they were still in this line of not really growing. They had made some improvements but they really weren't growing. They just were drifting along in a Corinthian lifestyle. So he's no longer angry, and he, they have made some real improvements since he wrote the first letter. And also he wrote a second letter that we don't have. We don't know what happened to it, but he refers to it. In 2 Corinthians, <clears throat> he goes way beyond correcting their errors, and he starts talking to them about their privileges. Now, I heard a preacher one time call 2 Corinthians the stepchild of the New Testament because hardly anybody ever preaches on it or teaches out of it. But to me, it's one of my favorite books. I love the book of 2 Corinthians and I love the book of Hebrews and I love the book of John and Romans and 1 Peter. And all, you know, <laughs> What's your favorite book? Yeah, that one we're in right now. <laughs> but in 2 Corinthians, and we're going to look at chapter 3, that's where we're going to start this morning. I'm just going to do some uh, summarizing. In 2 Corinthians, he is telling them about their great privilege of being new men, new women, new people in Christ. And our introduction might be as far as we get this morning. We'll see. I taught on 2 Corinthians chapter 3 not long ago, and I just want to remind you of a couple of things. He's talking about two covenants in the book of 2 Corinthians. He wants them to get a good look at where they are. They, they of course, had bypassed the Old Testament law, but no one lives without the law. Everyone will be judged by the law. God will judge every one of us by our works. He's not just going to judge us by the fact whether or not we've been to Calvary. He's going to judge us by our works. If you go to the book of Revelation and look at God's final judgment, everybody's brought before him. This is a great white throne. And it can be argued about who all is there. Some people say it's only the lost, but that doesn't make sense when you read it. Because he says the books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And everyone was judged out of the things written in the books. But that little book is opened, and he looks to see if your name's in it. If your name's in it, you're redeemed. If your name's not in it, you're condemned. But remember, first of all, that first principle, first you're judged by your works. Now, thank God, the new covenant... Under the new covenant, we're not judged by our works because our works themselves are judged. Instead, we're judged by whether or not we know that Jesus Christ is Lord 
And we have, we don't, nobody makes Jesus his Lord, by the way. He is Lord. But you recognize that fact, you call on him in that fact, you're depending on the fact that he died on the cross, he was buried and he rose again. You have responded to the gospel with repentance and faith. And you've been born again. Your name is written in the book of life and everything else is secondary. And that's the final decision. That's where the final decision is made. So with that in mind, we realize that God really has made two covenants. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, you see from the very beginning, God is putting before people two ways. You might say it's two ways of redemption, but we quickly come to the fact that one of them doesn't work. We start right at the beginning with law. God said, there's a tree in the garden, right in the middle. Don't eat it. He didn't say don't touch it. Eve said that. He just said, don't eat that fruit. In the day that you eat it, you'll die. That's law. You do the right thing, you don't eat it, and you live. You do the wrong thing, you eat it, and you die. That's the law in a nutshell. That's the same as Moses' law. The man that does these things will live by them. The problem, we don't do those things. None of us can perfectly keep God's commandments. So we start with law right from the very beginning. But then we get to Genesis chapter 3 where man fails and is condemned under the law and is going to work hard till he dies. The woman's going to have her childbirth greatly increase the pain, the suffering, and the number of children, by the way. That's the meaning of that word, the increase there. And we see that it's not just a curse, but it is a curse because the end of it is death. You've done this, you ate that fruit, and you're going to die. But then he turns around and he gives this promise. He's going to do something with the serpent. The serpent's going to bite him on the heel, but he's going to crush its head. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. That's grace. Do you see where I'm going here? You got law first, and then you have grace. And we come to the book of Exodus, and God gives this full law. It's like we had the seed in Genesis, and now we've got the full plant. In Exodus, and all of these commandments and all of these things, and the people gather around Mount Sinai, and Moses says to them, Will you keep these rules? And what do they say? Yes, we'll do that. And did they? No, they didn't. Now, how many successes do you have to have compared to your faults? How many faults do you have to have in order for the law to condemn? Well, the expression is simple. Moses said it. It's repeated. The soul that sinneth shall die. Memorize that. The soul that sinneth shall die. In this room, how many of you have never sinned? And you can raise your hands if you don't believe you have. <laughs> now, I have an aunt that would raise her hand. You know, she's gone on. I don't know if she was saved or not because she really didn't have a good understanding of, of God's grace and, and God. But the law condemns us all. Do you realize that? The law actually condemns us all. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Where in times past, you walked according to the, wor the, the world. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul is telling a long story that makes a stark contrast between this Old Testament of the law and the New Testament of grace. 
I'm going to tell you a little secret. The word testament, some people get confused. We have two testaments in our Bibles, right? That's, that's the same as the word covenant. We have two covenants. We have an old covenant and a new covenant. The old covenant is law. The new covenant is grace. And if you're under the old covenant, you're dead. If you're under the new covenant, you're saved. You understand the difference? We're saved by grace through faith. That's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Paul is, is telling these long stories in order to show us the stark difference between the two. It's not that the Ten Commandments aren't good. They are. They're glorious. In fact, glory is the word you would use for them. Paul says that the law, that's the Ten Commandments, and all, all the Old Testament, all of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of that is holy, just, and good. It expresses the goodness and holiness of God. But it cannot save. Paul tells us why in the book of Romans. He says it's weak in the flesh. It's weak in the flesh. Everything we do under the law, we're trying to obey it in our bodies. You understand there's a difference between your body and your soul. You have a body that's temporary. Paul's going to talk about that here in a little while. You have a soul that is eternal. It's going to live forever. But if that soul does not come to a place of the Spirit being newborn, born of God, born from above, as Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again or you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. So that the old is good and it's even glorious. But the new covenant, that is the covenant of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, what works inside is more glorious and it gives life. The old is temporary. <clears throat> the new excels in glory. Let me give you this 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's read verses 9 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 9 through 11. For if the ministration, and anytime you see a big word like that, I'm reading from the King James today because I didn't realize I had my computer set on it. I have had a tough time the last few days. <laughs> no sleep. If the ministration of condemnation is glorious, how much more does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory? All right, there it is. The ministration means servant, servant, servantness or deaconness. You're not a slave, you're a servant. Even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excels. For if that which is done away, that is the law, was glorious, how much more that which remains is glorious. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this last night. And so the Lord wouldn't let me sleep. And as I was thinking about this over and over again, God, I want to illustrate this to the people. I couldn't sleep. And about for about the fourth or fifth time, I got up to do a little exercise so I'd get sleepy and fall asleep. And I reached over and I turned on a light. In my living room is a nightlight. Plus there's a, there's a thing up in the attic. What do you call those things? A skylight. And it's just a little dome thing and it lights up the room a little bit. So when I'm laying in my bed, I can look out and I can see that the living room is light. It's pretty nice. Because at night, I'm 74 years old, I have to get up a lot. Just like a lot of you guys do, don't you? There's a little room that I visit several times a night. So I'm thankful for that little bit of light out there. 
But I noticed something last night, right at the time I was wanting to get some way to illustrate to you the glory and the glory that excels. And I was looking into the living room when I turned on my light and I saw the door, the double door with the glass on it that, that shuts off my room from the rest from the living room. I punched the light and it went dark in the other room. I thought, oh, I clicked the light twice more to get it to turn off and the other room was lighted. So I clicked it on again, just one time, just a little bit of light. And I looked out there and it was dark again. And I said, yeah, that's it. You see, the law gives light. The law is good. The law shows us the holiness of God. The law is a righteous thing. But when you put it in the bright light of God's grace, it doesn't have any light. It's just like walking from a room that's barely lit into a bright room and you look into that other room and it's dark. Even though just a moment before it seemed light. There's a glory that comes from God that excels. Now there might be somebody here this morning that still thinks... I know you're taught right here at this church, and that's a wonderful thing. But you may still believe, because you haven't put it into the computer up here, that you're trying to be good enough so that God will accept you. i got bad news for you, and the gospel starts with this. Because we've all sinned, we're all condemned. That's where we start with God. Because we're all sinners. David said in Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me. He's not talking about his mother's sin. He's talking about his sin. From the very moment I was born. You say, well, a baby doesn't sin. Well, a baby's not condemned. We know that from David losing his child and saying one of these days he was going to go, with that, go to be with that child. The child was in heaven. David was going to go be with him. He was a prophet, so we know that babies are okay. But babies are sinners. I had four of them. Little rascals are sinners. You know, you're sitting there enjoying your evening, talking to your wife, and all of a sudden you hear, <laughs> you go in, what's wrong? So you, you know, reach down, you pick him up. <laughs> Were you lying to me, you little rascal? No. <laughs> Nothing wrong, fed, dry, everything's fine. Just telling you something's wrong. Yeah, I think all of us do that from time to time. David gives us a good illustration of this when he says he's real depressed one day. He's all upset. It's in the Psalms. And he says, I said in my haste, all men are liars. And then he thought for a second, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. If all men are liars, what am I? Now, you ladies, there's something you need to understand. When the Bible says all men, that means all people. Okay? You're not exempted from that. Now, I, I, again, I had an aunt that said she's never told a lie. She never had sinned. You know, she'll tell God that one of these days. I don't know exactly how that's going to work. But there's none of us without sin. And when we break God's holy law, it can only condemn us. It can only give us life if we don't break it. And that's the point. Even though it's glorious... And even though its ministration is glorious, and here's the illustration that that Paul gives, Moses went up into the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he received the Ten Commandments, and when he came down, his face was glowing. But the light went out. That happened to me one time when we were, to my son, one time when we were out camping. He, uh, he He wanted to 
go out and see what was it was like out there at night. And so he got out of the little camper that we had and he walked out and he's walking through the woods a little bit and he came up over a big old timber wolf and it snarled at him. <clears throat> and his light that he was holding, he jerked it. And when he jerked it, the batteries fell out. <laughs> and it was a cloudy night. And so all of a sudden, all I hear is a thump, 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 as he ran into the camper. <laughs> he just ran right into it. So he felt his way around and jumped in and said, there's a timber wolf. I said, there's no wolves in this place. So the next day I asked, yeah, yeah, we've got timber wolves out here. Oh, man, what a scary thing it was for that boy. He was about, oh, he was just a little kid, about 16 or 17 at the time. <laughs> you understand. There is a glory that is done away. How bad you need light. And yet if the light goes out, and that's the problem with the law, and that's why it doesn't, doesn't benefit us as Christians to go back under the law or to keep the Jewish feasts or to keep the Jewish dietary laws or the, these different things. There may be some physical wisdom in some of it, which there is, but a lot of it's just arbitrary. God said, do this and don't do that. Why? Because he wanted to show us who was in charge. He's God and we're not. And you've heard Kyle say that a bunch of times. So there's a glory that is wonderful. That is the old law. But there's a glory that greatly excels. And that's the law of grace. The new law. And Paul is saying that the one law is not worthy to compare with the other, which is grace. We now have the light of the gospel on the inside. The old made Moses' face shine, but couldn't keep him alive. You remember he went up into the mountain, he died, he couldn't go into the Holy Land. He died and the Lord took care of him. The new law of life that gives life, that gives real life, keeps, al keeps us alive, but it's hidden inside. We'll get to that in just a moment. Through the Holy Spirit. But it's inside. And that brings us to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. I'm just still introducing here. So we want to live right. That's what Paul is saying. Now, if we've been born again, we have this new light inside. We live by this new covenant. And oh, by the way, if you want to learn more about the new covenant, read Jeremiah chapter 31. Read Daniel chapter 9. Uh, all the way through the Old Testament. Just look up the word covenant in a, in a uh, uh, concordance and then go through and trace out some of these things and you'll see the wonderful promises. God says, I'm not going to leave you under the old covenant, Jeremiah 31. I'm going to give you a new one. It won't be written on tables of stone. It'll be written on your heart. So here we are in chapter four. We're supposed to live right now. Paul uses himself as an example. Second Corinthians chapter four, look at verse two. We'll look at this twice right now. We'll just introduce it. Then we'll go back and read the first verses. We have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. We're not walking in craftiness. We're not, not handling the word of God deceitfully. But by the manifestation, let me stop just a minute and focus in on that word. When you see the word manifestation, you can think of revelation, revealing, unveiling. The word revelation is a good word. It means to take the veil off, okay? Unveiling, to take, take away that which keeps us from seeing. We're not walking in craftiness, we're not handling, but we're by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So, since the gospel has been revealed, unveiled in us, 
we want to do something too. We want now to take that gospel and unveil it to the lost. Look down at verse number 6 of chapter 4. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, he's talking about our hearts, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So now if you want to see Jesus, and we all, and we talked about that a moment, we'll see Him face to face. If you want to see Jesus, don't look at some rendering of, of Jesus. Look at a believer who's struggling, sometimes failing, but seeking to walk in the Spirit. And that's where you're going to see Jesus. It's revealed in us, and we'll see that farther along down here in chapter 4. Here's the problem. Under the new covenant, people can't see us glowing like Moses. So they're often held in this attitude of works. I've got to be good enough for God to accept me because I'm just as good as those Christians. Usually that's true. Let's read verses 1 through 9. Oh, no, no, let's don't. Let's go back to... Uh, let's just go back to chapter uh, 4, verse 7. I jumped down in my outline here. We have this treasure, verse number 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have this treasure, the treasure is the Holy Spirit, in earthen vessels. He's talking about our bodies as earthen vessels. We have the treasure of the Holy Spirit in earthen vessels. I want you to think about digging in the ground and finding an old clay pot you lift it out and you take the lid off and you realize it's full of gold and silver and precious stones. What Paul is saying here is we have the treasure of the Holy Spirit in these vessels of clay. We were made of the dust of the earth. This body was never meant to be permanent. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Outwardly, we're dying. That's why personality cults are so dangerous. You know, we get to, our young people worship the people they see on television, the, the stars, they're often called. They're not stars, they're just vessels of clay, just like the rest of us. They may be prettier, they may have more talent, but they're just vessels of clay. And that's what, what Paul is saying. And the only valuable thing is what's on the inside. The treasure is on the inside. <laughs> So, always bearing about, verse 10 says, outwardly we're dying, but verse 10, go down, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. So just like Jesus died, he was 33 to 37 years old, we don't know. He died on a cross. Just like that, we too are dying. Boy, this is a depressing lesson, isn't it? But we know this, we're dying. The older we get, the more we know it. But we're bearing about in this body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest, again revealed, unveiled, that is in our body. So somehow or another, this old body has to die so that the new life can manifest itself. Of course, Paul's making a subtle point here that he's made other places and he doesn't fully define it for us in this spot. And that point is this. Live now like you're already dead. He tells us that in Romans. We've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And now let that life that is in us manifest itself. Go ahead and die. Because guess what? 
God, Romans chapter 8, counts you already dead. When God looks at you, He's not seeing the aging. I mean, I look out here and I see nothing but beautiful people. Okay. But God is not looking at the aging people that He sees. He's looking at the Holy Spirit growing in us. He's looking at the manifestation of Himself coming out. That's what He wants to see. He wants us to let the inward life be reflected in our outer life. So verse 11, jump down there. Inwardly we're exploding with the life of Christ and the knowledge of Christ. Verse 11 says, 2 Corinthians 4.11, We which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Now, a point he's going to make later in the book. So our suffering at this time is really not that important in the eternal scheme of things, except as it glorifies God and it shows His glorious promise. Again, Romans chapter 8, in this we groan, not that we would be unclothed, but rather clothed upon, that death might be swallowed up in life. So our suffering at this time, and Paul's going to talk a lot about his suffering as we get later on in the book, it serves a glorious purpose if we reflect the glory of God in our lives. Now, I don't know what any of y'all have been through, but I've seen the loss of a child. I've seen disappointment in my life, certainly. I lost my first wife, as Mary Best did too. Uh, we've, we've both lived through that. Uh, I got fired from a church one time. The best thing that ever happened to me, by the way, but it did happen. Uh, by the way, just a few weeks later, the pastor was fired, so don't, you know, don't blame me for that. The point is that all of us go through things. We get sick. We have temptations. Oh, Brother Powell, you mean temptations are part of our struggle? Yeah, read what Paul says about his thorn in the flesh. Everything that we go through is a manifestation. It's a struggle. It's unveiling Christ in us. So instead of hating the things that we endure, we embrace them. Instead of being so scared of death we can't stand it, rather we're like Frances Havergale who, lying on her deathbed, thought she was going to get well and the doctor came in and said, Frances, I'm sorry, but you're not going to recover from this. And she looked up and said, oh, really? Oh, you mean, oh, good. Because she knew she was going to go to heaven. She was going to be like Jesus, and she was going to be with Jesus, and as the song says, she would see Him face to face. So we don't embrace the physical life. We embrace the spiritual life, and even our suffering turns out to be good. And again, Romans chapter 8 tells us the same thing when it says, we know that all things work together for good to those that love the Lord, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Now, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, You don't probably haven't understood too much of what I've said. It all seems kind of crazy. Let me just remind you, this only applies to the person who has the Spirit of Christ. We're going to talk about that in the end of the lesson this morning. This only applies to the person who has been born again. Now, don't think when I say I've been born again that I think I'm better than you. Or any of us are better than anybody. Don't think that it means that somehow or another I have a higher station or I'm, you know, 
The simple thing of the matter is, I've, I've, I understood in my life a long time ago that the glory belongs to God, not me. That the praise is His. That if there's to be any manifestation of the glory of God, it has to be from the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Anytime we get involved in the earthly nonsense that we all from time to time get involved in, you know, jealousies, emulation, strife, variance, the things that Paul talks about in the works of the flesh, even as he goes on to say lusts, inordinate desires, all of those things that dwell in this physical body, they're passing away. So, for this reason, look down at verse 16, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. For which cause we faint not. Though our outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. And our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is developing or working in us a far more and exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What's Paul saying? The more that I go through, the more God will ultimately be glorified. Let's look at that just for a minute. That inward man being renewed day and day, our light affliction. The Apostle Paul was rejected. He was stoned. He was beaten. The Jews had this wonderful thing they did. They took it from Moses' law, and they'd take a person and strip his back bare, and they'd lean him over something so his skin was real tight, and then they'd take a cane pole, and they'd beat him, or, or sometimes a whip, that beat him 39 times. I remember when I was a kid going to the principal's office and getting swats. What are you doing? You, you agreeing with me you've had that? Any of you others have that experience? That's not fun. I never got 39 of them. I remember him hitting me once and I thought, ooh, that, that, that kind of surprised me, that kind of hurt. He hit me again, I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not gonna cry, I'm not gonna cry. It's a seventh grader. He whacked me that third time and I said, oh, thank God it's over because I was getting three swats. Man, that hurt. The Apostle Paul had that 39 times, and it hurt a lot more than that little board with the holes in it that my principal used to use. Oh, yeah, today he'd be such a, an abuser. You know. It was good for me. I didn't gamble in school anymore. <laughs> there are consequences. Even... The afflictions that we have, Paul was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was, he was despised by some of the churches. The, the, the church there at Corinth despised him. They, they re referred to him as contemptible. How do you like that? Here's a guy that put his life on the line to go there and preach the gospel, saw wonderful numbers of people come to Christ and then a couple of other preachers preach and they say, you know, I like Peter, I like Apollos. You know, and he, they said, this Paul, he's just kind of contemptible. Uh, he's ugly. His speech, he, he has a high-pitched voice. By the way, he's the only apostle that we have any physical description of. And you've, maybe you remember me saying this before. But they said he was slightly hunchbacked. He had one eyebrow that went all the way across his forehead. Unibrow. And he, <laughs> he had a, 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 an ugly look on his face, looked look like a permanent scowl with deep wrinkles under and around his eyes. So when you looked at Paul, you weren't impressed, and yet when he wrote letters, they were so powerful. 
And when he spoke, it was powerful. Now, all of this, these kinds of things that we face day by day, and all of us, we face, by the way, we face three enemies. We face the world, we face the devil, and we face our own flesh. Those are our three enemies. Did you ever think of yourself as being your own worst enemy? I see a bunch of men shaking their heads. <laughs> yep, yeah. We fight, we struggle, we pray, and yet we have besetting sins. They just come around, they sneak up on us, they catch us when we're not even thinking about it. Oh, I think I'll have that fourth piece of chocolate cake. Whatever it is, just a lust, you know. A desire, the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So we have these things that we fight. Somebody says, the world made me do it. I, uh, the devil made me do it. No, I don't have any problem really with the devil. I, I, I do real fine just fighting the flesh. But that brings us to chapter 5, and we're not going to really get to it because we're not going to have time. But chapter 5 can be summed up, and we are going to get a little ways in it, to saying we're not living for the present but for the eternal. Let's read a little bit of it. Chapter 5. We know that if our earthly house, think about your body, not the house you live in, but the body you're living in. Your earthly house of this tabernacle, okay, now instead of a house that's built out of brick and stone with a nice shingle roof on it, think about a tent. Because he calls it a tabernacle, a tent. That's what the word tabernacle means. If it's dissolved, we've been talking about that, that's what the preceding chapter is about. If this earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle groan. And the older we get, the more we groan. I used to play football. You get down in a three-point stance, the ball is snatched, and you run in and you chase the quarterback down if you're fast enough, which I, I wasn't. But you, you, know, you do your best to do that. We used to, they call it blitzing now. We used to call it red dog. In this we groan. Today, if I get down in a three-point stance, I'm in a three-point stance. That's where I stay. To get up, I have to do some groaning. So in this, we groan. We're burdened. Now, it's not that we're in a hurry to be unclothed, but rather clothed upon, that this mortality might be swallowed up in life. Now, there he's echoing what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he says, this mortal must, must, must put on immortality. This dying must put on undying. This human body, if, if we're born again, has to be revealed in eternal life. So verse 5, look at verse 5. He that has produced, wrought, worked in us, produced in us is what it means. Now, he that has produced in us, the self, the same thing is God. And he has given to us the earnest of the Spirit. I want you to look at that word earnest. Had a man in my church named Ernest. Wonderful man. He was a deacon. Also had a deacon named Frank. And they were just Frank and Ernest. 
they were two of the greatest deacons that ever lived. I mean, I had them for a long time. They, uh, you know, we, we could be in a discussion, and I've always been kind of wishy-washy. Somebody over here would say, you know, I think we ought to do this. And I'd say, yeah, that sounds good. And somebody over here would say, wait a minute, I think we ought to do this. And I'd say, oh, yeah, that sounds better. And then the first person would talk again and say, yeah, but let's, let's think about that because of this. And I'd say, yeah, that's a, he's got a good point. And then the other guy would say, oh, yeah, but this is such and such. And I'd say, yeah, he's got, you know, I don't, I don't know. And then Ernest would speak. And when Ernest spoke, he was like the old investment place. Everybody listened. He was an elderly, elderly man and just wise, wise, wise. And when he spoke, everybody said, oh, yeah. Because when he spoke, you could tell this man that walked with the Spirit of God. Physically, he was a wreck. He barely could get out of bed, but he was in church every Sunday. And there, he'd come up and limp around and vacuum the carpet. This old man, retired, was so wise in the Lord Jesus Christ. I took him out witnessing with me. When, and I'll be honest, he just embarrassed me the way that he would confront people. Uh, that's a, I'm accusing myself, but it's true. Wise man, when Ernest spoke, you could tell that he had the earnest of the Holy Spirit. That word earnest is a wonderful Greek word. I'm not going to use it because, you know, I keep my tools in my toolbox. But the word there, it, it means promise, but it means more than that. It's a down payment a guarantee. How many of you have ever bought a house and you put some earnest on it? That's the meaning. It's a guarantee. It's just a partial thing. And what is that earnest for the Christian? What is the promise? What is the wedding ring that God gives us? What is the down payment that God makes on our eternal salvation? It's the presence of the Holy Spirit Himself. If you know anything about the Trinity, you know that where the Father is, the Son is. Where the Son is, the Holy Spirit is. They're never fully separated. It's a great mystery. Thomas said, uh, I mean, Philip said, show us the Father and it'll make us happy. And Jesus looked at him and said, have I been with you so long you don't know me? Indicating not that he was the Father, but that when he was looking at him, he could see the Father if he was looking deep enough. So when you're looking at Christ, you're seeing the Father and you're seeing the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is saying here is that God Almighty puts Himself in you when you trust Him as your Lord and Savior. Do you get that? Is this some great experience? Well, it was for the first century Christians, but at the end of the first century, that kind of died out. Some people claim great experiences. I know the night I was saved, I, I felt something. felt a great sense of relief and release and, and, and a forgiveness of sin and a joy. But I didn't see any flashing lights. Everything was on the inside. I, was, I got, went to work the next day and I still thought cussed words. <laughs> Hate to admit that. I still got mad when customers mistreated me. I didn't show it because, you know, you keep a smile on your face. And I wasn't outwardly changed very much, but something was sure different on the inside. And I knew it. I was aware of it. When I would pray, I, I felt a connection. Especially when I opened the Word of God, all of a sudden it made sense to me. And it changed me. And there was this great, wonderful passion that grew inside of me 
for the Word and the things that before I just honestly had despised. Now they meant so much. So brothers and sisters, let me tell you. If you're a born-again believer, you have the earnest of the Spirit. It's God's promise that He's going to do all these other things. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this promise. We thank You for this, uh, this engagement ring that You've given us, this uh, thing that we do not deserve. And we thank You for the glory that hides inside of us. And like Paul said, we have this treasure in jars of clay, in earthen vessels. Help us, Lord, to dig up what's inside and show it to the world so that more can come to You, Father. And because we understand this great wonder and we understand the wrath of God through the law, we more and more and more want to persuade men. We ask you this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.